Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me your host Zoe Blasky where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer and that little bit kinder to yourself because I think life as a mum in this hectic modern world is hard enough as it is. I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. Hi everyone. I think a collective truth is that as mothers, we have held a lot, there's an understatement for you, this past year. I hear almost every day stories of you feeling exhausted, low in energy and burnt out. Well, Selena Barker, who is this week's guest, says that feeling exhausted, frazzled, and you know that feeling of just being on a treadmill that has no end in sight, she says that isn't just how it is. We don't need to accept that as our status quo, and we have so much more power to change how we feel than we think we do. Selena says that learning to manage her energy means that she now feels more energised, grounded, and calm than even her pre-child self, And that's what this episode can give you too. It is full of tools, ideas, and practical ways that you can start to feel more joy, energy, and calm every day, despite it still being a global pandemic. It's quite a big promise, isn't it? But I do believe that if you put into practice at least one or two of the ideas in this episode, you would start to notice a difference in your energy levels And I think it's important to say that it's one thing listening to an episode like this. It is another thing to actually apply these tools regularly in your life. So that's my invitation for you. Take one or two of the ideas that Selena and I talk about and actually apply them. Then let me know the change that you see. Let me know how you get on. I hope you really enjoyed this episode. Here it is. So Selena, welcome. I'm really excited to get into all things burnout. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I'm such a fan of your podcast. And while I was writing the book, I used to tune into your podcast episodes a lot because I was like, your audience are the kind of people that I'm writing for. And the depth and the insight that you go into in your conversations, it was ah, was so inspiring and motivating. Thank you. you. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't, know a mother or many mothers who haven't felt some degree of burnout through the pandemic yeah particularly homeschooling and I mean it's just been unreal really hasn't it yeah and I've got a son who's five homeschooling for me was like (laughs) and working it's like having been given a part-time job on top of a full-time job and a part-time job that I didn't want to have that he didn't want me to have that my partner didn't want It's been really tough. Yeah, we opted out of homeschooling, which I think is one of my (laughs) wiser decisions, I've got to say. That's genius. (laughs) opted out of it. Should have done that. (laughs) (laughs) Why didn't I think to do that? (laughs) Well, the school were really supportive. We did bits. We did a little bit of reading every day, but I certainly didn't do the 10 worksheets that were coming down the line. (laughs) I was like, no way. way." I think it depends on the school. Our school really acknowledged that most parents were working. And so they said, listen, you do what you can. And if sometimes your kid doesn't want to do the work, don't push it. And if sometimes you've got loads on and you can just do the bare minimum, that's 
totally fine yeah. so we had a lot exactly. of support as well which was yeah good. yeah we had all in all like quite a nice time like we did so much cosmic kids yoga I'm pretty sure <laughs> Jessie could qualify as a teacher <laughs> oh, that's amazing She'll, she can lead a class like she'll wow. lead you for a 30 minute because we did so much of it <laughs> so I just loved it and little Rose who's 15 months she'll do it as well like she'll oh. follow along yeah so you've got this amazing new book out about burnout and I was reading it last night it is so good and there's so much I want to get through and I want to <laughs> hear in this episode but a good place to start might be how does someone know that they're burnt out versus just mm. feeling a little bit knackered so burnout I mean is total and utter exhaustion for most people when they're burnt out it's on the physical level but it's also very much on an emotional and a mental and a spiritual level. So the different symptoms are anything from that just bone-tired exhaustion, feeling your brain is frazzled, like a fuse has gone, and you can barely choose what to have for lunch without feeling overwhelmed. You suddenly, you're foggy, it's hard to make choices, you're overwhelmed, you could be irritable. Over a longer period of time, you can become very cynical, start losing confidence in work that you used to be confident in, start wondering if you even enjoy this work, lose touch with your values. And if you're emotionally burnt out, you can experience compassion fatigue. So usually people who are normally very caring, loving people suddenly actually don't feel very caring or loving at all and feel resentful and irritated and resentful about the people they're having to take care of, whether it's their family or whether it's their clients or their patients. So it comes in all sorts of shapes and sizes. I mean, I think really my book, Burnt Out, is much for people who are feeling just totally exhausted and fatigued a lot of the time, as much as if you are burnt out. But for me, the difference is when you're burnt out, you just feel like you really can't cope. And just having a few early nights and a hot bath isn't going to fix it. That's barely touches the sides. That's when you know that you're burnt out rather than just a bit tired. And also burnout tends to last a lot longer. So if you can look back and go, I don't know when the last time was that I didn't feel this tired, then for sure you're probably burnt out. But it is interesting because a lot of people, the first time it happens, they don't realize they're burnt out and they try to almost deny it. No, 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 it's not that. And people will come to me and and sort of list all these different symptoms. I mean, a friend of mine came to me the other day and she said, I've been so exhausted for such a long time. I'm so overwhelmed. I feel like I'm chasing my tail. I just feel like I'm constantly on the go. Do you think I'm burnt out? (laughs) I was just like, babe, I've been waiting for you to come to me (laughs) for years. Yes, I absolutely think you're burnt out. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because in some ways for mothers and women, there's this kind of narrative that that is just how it is and there's a lot of chat you know at the school gate you know how are you busy how are you you know oh, getting through the list how are you oh go 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 there's this kind of just acceptance that when we become mothers and you know you're not a mother listening to this that life is just for doing yeah what I'm interested in is the kind of intersection, and we're going to get into it, between us taking responsibility for it, but also the environment that we're in and those beliefs that we absorb from social media. What did the kind of research that you did uncover about that? First of all, I want to say that you just really hit the nail on the head 
for me, what really started to get me fired up and feeling like this isn't okay and I want to do something about this is because of exactly that. More and more, I started to notice that women that were coming to me, have been a career change coach for over 10 years, and people would come to me for different reasons, but more and more it was because they were burnt out. And more and more, I was hearing the women around me, mothers, not mothers, talking about being burnt out and experiencing either big burnouts or mini burnouts, which is what I had for a few years, where every two or three months, I would just suddenly completely crash and burn and have a mini burnout. It would take a couple of weeks to recover rather than a few months, like the bigger burnouts. But it was just this cycle that I just didn't seem to be able to get out of anymore. Or some people just seem to be living in a state of burnout constantly or on the verge of burnout. And it was this narrative around it that I was starting to hear of. That's just how it is. You know, this is welcome to the real world. This is what happens when you try to have a career and children and a social life. Oh, and do a few things for yourself. It's like, there's just too much to juggle. There's just like so much going on. And that has always been the thing. Whenever anyone says to me, that's just how it is. There's something in me that goes, no, no way. This isn't okay. And what's scaring me is how much we're normalizing it. Also seeing it starting to be used as a badge of honor in the same way as busyness is used as like that badge. Oh, I'm so burnt out. But actually when people are really, truly burnt out, they do get into what I found because I did a big survey asking lots of people to kind of talk to me about their experience of burnout, whether they were burnt out at the time or they had been burnt out. And what I really noticed was this experience of powerlessness and hopelessness and helplessness. They knew what they needed to do. I'd also ask them, what self-care habits really help you when you're feeling like this? And they could easily list them. And then I'd ask, are you doing them? Invariably, no. So that's why in the book, I talk about managing your energy more than I talk about self-care, because I realized that was more of a way in to get people on board. You've touched on it about the societal expectations and the normalization of keeping going. Yeah, 100%. So it's exactly that. If if we think about the conversations we often have with mums at the school gate or people at work or other entrepreneurs, other working women, is it's that thing of, oh, I'm so busy. This is just how it is. Also with stress, for example. So we say we want to have stress-free lives, but we have this narrative that modern life, it just is stressful. We accept stress as being part of our working lives and our normal lives and being part of parents. Therefore, I think we just don't look to see what we can practically do about it. You know, and the more we accept something, the more we normalize it, the less we feel inclined to do something about it because we think, well, that's just how it is. So why would you try to change it if everyone seems to be in that position? And that's something that I really find when it comes to burnout and also stress. And I think something you said just really struck a chord for me, which is that when you ask those people, you know, what should you be doing effectively? Everyone knows. And I think we live in a world now where knowledge is not the issue, right? <laughs> Anyone can Google top 10 self-care ideas. That The challenge is actually applying yeah. some of those things in your life. And I think this goes deeper, doesn't it? And you talk to this in the book really beautifully about how, Often what's going on is a belief that we have typically picked up from our own caregivers, ancestors, or other people around us when we were growing up, that it's not okay to rest. And that there's this kind of guilt associated with rest. And yet rest 
is described in your book, but is the cornerstone of reclaiming some of that energy as you talk about. So what did you find about how someone can start to unpick some of those deeper things going on? Because it is deeper. It's not as simple yeah. as it is. Okay, we'll do a bit of meditation every day. Because if it was, everyone would be doing it. Yeah. There's bigger blockers. The thing is with burnout is that for everyone it's different, but there's sort of three main areas. So one is that the pressure that's coming from within and that comes from those narratives. And that comes from what I, I like to call the shitty committee, your inner shitty committee, which is that inner critic. And if you've got that turned up really high, either telling you, come on, you know, you've got to do this. It's got to be perfect. It's got to be better than that. And putting the pressure on all the time, that alone can burn you out. But so too can those narratives around, like you say, if your ancestors experienced famine, poverty, slavery, all sorts of different kinds of trauma and they had to fight and they had to strive and they had to struggle, which most people in their bloodline have got back going on at some point. Even if it wasn't the last couple of generations, you go back far, you know, far enough, there is struggle and strife. And so that narrative comes through that in order to live, you have to struggle and strive. And what's interesting is, and this comes into, you know, when you talk to people about thriving, designing a life that you love, you often sense this resistance to it because there can be a feeling of betraying or showing up the people that came before me. Who am I to thrive and be happy when they struggled and they strived? And in some cases to rest was like, you could be killed for resting and stopping working. So there, there can be these really strong narratives that take healing take healing to let go of. So you can do some of going, okay, what are my narratives around whether women being able to thrive and mothers being able to thrive? What is my narrative around what makes a good woman? What makes a good mother? It's such a strong narrative in our society that to be a good and caring person, you should be putting the needs of others before you. And particularly if you're a mother, So we do have to, I mean, you work with women all the time with this stuff. You have to consciously work to put yourself up as a top priority, not the most important thing in your life, but a top priority. And that takes work and that takes conscious effort. And that's why I really love life design, using your calendar as your canvas to actually start scheduling in things like rest, you know, having an evening where you turn off your screens and if you have a partner, they can do bath time because on a Wednesday night, that is my deep rest night and having that kind of stuff scheduled in because you can't wait until every part of you is on board with this idea that, you know, you should be a top priority at first. You just have to schedule that stuff in and treat it like you would a doctor's appointment with the same kind of importance. You know, I love how you break down. You talked about that, that kind of overcaring. You break yeah. down these archetypes, you know, the overdoer, <laughs> the overthinker, the overgiver, the overachiever. And I was like, oh, I recognize myself in all of those. Absolutely. Can you, can you <laughs> just touch on those and why it's important to understand that background before we get into some of the what you can do, the tools and the, the ideas? Yeah, it's just important to notice what happens 
under the surface. Because obviously, you know, with cases of burnout, there are often a lot of things going on outside of you that are causing you to burn out. So I don't want to put the onus on the individual, like you're burnt out because you've done something wrong. You know, often it's like, I mean, so many cases of narcissistic boss or toxic work culture or racial microaggressions or just working in a world that wasn't designed for you to thrive in. Because if you're not cis, white, male, without parental responsibilities and the place you work in probably isn't designed for you to thrive in. So I get into that later on down the line. But first of all, we need to look at what's going on under the surface. And so when you've got this loud, shitty committee that's putting pressure on you all the time to go, 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 when there's like a tight deadline or the pressure's on at work, it can come in with like whip in hand and be making you go, not allowing you to rest, not allowing you to stop filling you with doubts and fears and almost trying to motivate you with sort of threats and bullying. (laughs) That often is how it can motivate, particularly for someone who's got drive and ambition, whether that drive and ambition is to make lots of money, make a difference, be the best caring person you can be. It will come in and it will push you into overdrive. And when that happens, I noticed there were different sorts of characteristics depending on what your tendency tends to be. So the burnout archetypes are like the shadow side of your greatest gifts. So the overgiver, for example, when they're in balance, when they're in full power, they are that generous, caring, loving, empathetic person who just knows how to be there for people, knows how to hold space for them. Pushed into overdrive and with the shitty committee in town that's suddenly filling you with doubts and fears, it goes into overdrive and suddenly you're overextending yourself you're saying yes when really you should be saying no. You come from this also often when you're an overgiver, you have this belief that you have this limitless amount of energy that you can be giving to other people. And you tend to forget about yourself. You tend to drop all your self-care habits because you suddenly don't have time, not realizing actually you have to double up on your self-care habits. And that's what then leads into emotional burnout. So you're just completely depleted and then you tend to find yourself feeling resentful, don't have the same kind of compassion, you feel irritable. When they talk about you can't pour from an empty cup, that's how I see that emotional energy, which is what overgivers tend to, their cup tends to run dry when they're burnt out. What about the overdoer? Do you know what? The overdoer is like, I really feel like particularly our parents' generation the mothers, a lot of the mothers in that generation were the overdoers. Obviously, we can all be overdoers today, but it's just like constantly doing, never stopping, never stopping to rest, never stopping to relax. It's like do, do, do. And it's that complete enslavement to the to-do list. And the to-do list that just keeps building is just ever bigger. And it just becomes like an obsession that it's so big, you can't press pause on it. It's just there the moment you wake up. It's there when you go to bed, you fall asleep, you're still thinking of all the things you need to do. The overdoer just will not stop. And they'll say they yeah, can't stop. Definitely my mum. Definitely yeah, my mum. But it's... She's got this phrase. She still says it today. She won't mind me sharing this. <laughs> we laugh about it. She says, I'm not going to sit down because if I did, I wouldn't be able to get up. So I'm just going to keep going. She says it. And I'm like, mum, can you hear what you're saying? <laughs> Do you know that is so interesting? And I also find that with people who can't switch off. I do find this a lot, particularly in people who run their own businesses, that they will say they're afraid to switch off and stop thinking about work because they worry that they won't be able to gear up again 
that they'll lose their edge. And I used to be like that. I remember that. I remember being like constantly thinking about work. I would never not be thinking about work, even if I was, you know, on the weekend and taking time out. And but I would still be thinking about work. And because my fear was that if I switched off, I wouldn't be able to switch back on again. And I hear that from a lot of business owners and entrepreneurs is that they fear switching off because what it somehow that makes them lose their edge. Now, now I'm just like, what a weird concept. When I switch off now for the weekend, I've properly even thinking about work doesn't get into my weekend and it allows me to completely recharge my batteries. I always see Monday as my warm up into the week. It can be a bit slow sometimes, but then I'm in full power. Whereas before when I used to never switch off, I was constantly running on empty, then having to jack myself up with caffeine and adrenaline to keep myself going. And then I was wired. I was kind of wired and manic versus grounded and energized. And I think there's this kind of myth, and I want you to just share some of the science that's in the book around this, that we're more productive if we somehow keep going, if we work longer, if we work later. And actually, the opposite is true, isn't it? This is for me writing this book, this is the part that actually changed my life and was a total game changer. So this whole concept of managing your energy, when I started to get into it, I remember where I was sitting and I had this kind of moment of like, this is the big missing piece. This is it. This is the bit that I've been missing. And this is a bit that will really help people when they're burnt out. Because obviously like burnout is an energy crisis you're completely depleted in energy in all levels. So we do need to understand what's going on with our energy. And I realized I had no idea how to manage my energy at all. So what you were saying before is that this isn't a lack of knowledge. Well, actually it is a combination because I was led to believe so many things, and this comes back to the narratives that we're fed about productivity that actually were wrong. And the best thing about understanding what it takes, these ingredients that you need to thrive in terms of managing your energy are the exact same ingredients that you need in order to be at your most productive and to do your best work. So it's not a case of, okay, so now I need to learn to look after myself, which means that, fine, my work might suffer a bit. It might not be as good, but at least I'll be happy and healthy. No, if you learn how to really look after and manage and honor your own energy, you will be your most productive and you will do your best work. Because I learned so much from Tony Schwartz and Jim Lower, who wrote The Power of Full Engagement. And they used to work with tennis champions, American tennis champions. And then they took that, all that they learned about managing your energy into the corporate space in America. It's beautiful what they write. It's super corporate. It's so funny that Paris is like, this book is amazing. It's two guys in their suits in corporate America. But they talk about how as human beings, we are rhythmic creatures and we need to return to that. And we are treating ourselves like we're machines. So coming back to that productivity, we have this totally wrong notion and kind of narrative around productivity. You've got to work hard, work fast, skip lunch. You know, it's just like keep going, going, going. You know, the hero of the late nights and sort of powering on. But there's loads and loads of research. I mean, there's so much research on this that every hour and a half, take a 10 to 20 minute break. By the end of the day, we'll have been more productive and done more work than the person who has decided they don't have time to take a break. 
Because what happens is the person who takes a break goes and recharges their battery. So they are fully energized. They're fully engaged. They're refreshed. They can think more clearly. They can think smarter. They've got better perspective. They've stepped away from their work. They've come back. They're better at making choices. I'm going to do this. This can wait. We have the ultra DM rhythm and natural ultra DM rhythm where for about an hour and a half, we're in high brain activity. And then after about an hour and a half, our brain activity naturally dips. That's when you start yawning, you sort of start procrastinating, you start sort of being distracted, wanting to scroll on your phone. Now, if we were to listen to that and went, ah, that's my body saying it's time to rest, or as I do, I'll put an alarm on every hour and a half going, go and have a break. Even taking a five minute break, step away from your screen or whatever work you're doing, do something that helps to recharge your batteries. That could be doing some stretches, taking a turn around the block, staring at your ceiling on the bed, you know, or chatting to a friend. It's depending what you're doing, kind of doing different activity that helps to recharge your batteries. You come back to your work, you're fully recharged. If you don't, if you push through it, you now have to get yourself either with caffeine or with adrenaline or getting your shitty committee to come in and go, no time for breaks. If you don't hit that deadline, you are screwed. Now your adrenaline's going. Now you're in fight or flight. And when you get into that, when you're in that distressed state of urgent panic, that's when your IQ drops. That's when you don't make such good choices. That's when you don't focus on the right stuff. That's when you can't use your intuition. You can't use your creativity because you're in fight or flight. So it's like (gasps) in panic mode. It completely blew my mind how everything we've been kind of led to believe about speed and progress and faster and constantly doing thinking that that's how we do our best work is completely wrong. So taking breaks isn't just a nice to have and kind of getting in the way of you doing the work you need to do. It's actually helping you to do your best work and be your most productive. And that's why we need to completely relook at how we understand work. And that's why so many places of work have these toxic work cultures because our modern day approach to work is toxic and it's everywhere. So I'm not surprised everyone is burning out. And even those of us who work for ourselves, we're still taking those into our own practices. And I wonder if even people who, you know, their work is parenting, their work is in the home. I think Mm. we still take that hang up from when we were kind of in corporate life or just those messages about, I remember guy would come in and I'd be like sat on the sofa watching something with the baby on me and I'd feel embarrassed. Like yeah. that I wasn't doing, that I wasn't busy. And it's like, why? Oh. It's just so ingrained, isn't it? In a cellular level, this idea that our worth is from our productivity. It's so easy to say, and it's kind of become a bit of an instant meme, hasn't it? But actually it is incredibly deep. I think that runs, as you were talking about before, the kind of ancestral, I think it's really deep. And breaking that is clearly, clearly so important because we're also modeling all the time to our own children about what it means to work and what self-worth looks like. Let's talk about phones and phone addiction. That was another (laughs) big realization you had around your addiction to your phone. And I'm so fascinated to hear about it. So tell us what happened when you realized your phone addiction. It must have been that as I was starting to write the book and research into in the modern world, the modern digital world, what are the things that are, you know, causing us lots of stress? And obviously it's all these fantastic digital tools, but they now encourage us 
and allow us to be on 24-7. And this is a huge problem because at least a generation, a couple of generations ago, when you came home from work, you came home from work. There was a much clearer boundary between work and home life. And we don't have that now. So I was just like, okay, you know, looking into it. And as I started researching smartphone addiction, I genuinely thought, I'm fine. That's not something I've got. And I started to look into it. I was just like, oh, wow. I literally ticking every single box. So, I mean, a lot of my friends didn't have this, I discovered, but I still had notifications on my phone. I would get this thing called a phantom vibration. So when you think you've got a message because you think you felt a vibration and you go to look at your phone and there isn't one. And it was saying that is a sign of real smartphone addiction. I was like, that happens to me all the time. If you panic when you pop to the shops and you haven't taken your phone, that would happen to me. That you wake up in the morning, first thing you do is you look at your phone. It's probably the last thing you do at night. <laughs> You're wincing. <laughs> well, you know? only, only, because, only because I don't do any of this, but I did. Yeah. Um, and so like you, I've kind of seen the profound impact of distancing myself from it. Yeah. I remember they said some people sleep with their phones next to them in their bed. That's my partner. I'll often wake up in the middle of the night and be like, get this phone out of my bed. (laughs) There's not three of us in this relationship, you know? And so it was suddenly realizing and then discovering the impact that it was having on me that I had no idea about. So I thought I was absolutely fine. Everyone's doing it. Everyone, you know, checks their phones. But if you are that overly dependent on your phone as I was, then you don't realize how much it's putting you into a sort of high alert at all times. I mean, there's so much brilliant research around this, but if you're addicted to your phone, even having your phone in your bag, it's pulling away at your attention all the time. It's as if someone was sitting next to you and going, Zoe, Zoe, Zoe. So like, you know, whispering your name over and over again, because it's drawing your attention. And as soon as you can hear, if you're working and you hear a buzz on your phone, even if it's turned face down, there's part of you that goes, what was the message? What was the message? And until you look at the message, you're not going to feel calm again. But invariably the message will be something where it's asking you to make a decision, asking you to do something. So now that's another thing added to to your to-do list. The beautiful thing I found by writing the book and then doing this work with people and trying it out on them is that actually it can be tiny changes that can really start to make a huge difference. So it's not about redesigning your whole life. It's not that you have to learn some clever new form of meditation or that, you know, and if you want to, then that's great. But it can be the really small things because a lot of the time people are like, I just don't have the time. I just don't have the time to do the things that I want to. Okay, we'll switch off your phone every day at 5 p.m and then see how much more time you have. If you panic at the idea of that, then let's address that. I've got a landline now. That's old school. So that I don't need to panic if my parents need to get hold of me or people that need to get hold of me that they can because they've got my landline. I've got really good at this actually with kind of not having my phone with me. And I always think if it was urgent, the school has Guy's number. He's always with his phone. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my mum and dad have guys that, you know, they would just call Guy and he would come and find me like it would be okay. But one of the things that you said was that you got your memory back. Oh, yes. Because quite a few people have mentioned to me during that time, perhaps we perhaps have been talking to my friends about using our phones all the time. I remember a friend of mine said to me, you know, it's ruining our memory, like our short-term memory. It ruins our ability to remember things. But what I found was that I would often walk into a room 
and be like, why have I come in here? I would do it all the time. And I was genuinely starting to worry about what was going on. You know, I'm not that old. And this feels like this is a bad level of sort of memory retention. And when you're that addicted to your phone, it keeps you in this sort of semi-permanent state of distraction and not fully present. And I promise you, as I kicked my smartphone addiction and just like really got hold of it over a couple of weeks. And there was a feeling of withdrawal for a couple of days. Like I genuinely felt it. After a couple of weeks, that experience of walking into a room four to five times a day and being like, why have I come in here? Completely stopped. Isn't that incredible? It completely stopped. The driver for me was that I read a study about relationships and the phone. And that even having the phone on the table or on my kitchen island, which is where it always used to be with my kids around, was affecting the quality of my relationship with them. And I read this study and it was very powerful. And I was like, God, how can I talk like I do about the power of presence and connection and being all where you are? And actually just even having this thing out when I'm with them or whoever is impacting the quality yeah. relationship it really yeah it really shook me and so I now don't have it in the room when I'm with the kids normally mm. unless there is like some sort of emergency but typically I won't have it and things like watching tv with Jesse I used to just sit there and scroll now I don't I actually sit and I know the whole of Frozen 2 off my heart <laughs> And in some ways, I think, gosh, I'm losing that. You know, the fear was this is an hour and 10 minutes that I could be productive. I could be doing my emails. I could be multitasking that way. Actually, like now, it's a really nice hour and a half to rest, connect with her. She feels so loved, I think, because she's like, mommy, did you see that bit? She wants to speak to me about it. And I think it's not easy. Like, I definitely had to battle past that shitty committee, as you would call it, to be able to do that. But what I've seen is that this idea of multitasking is such a myth. Like, I really just want to be wherever I am. I want to be all there. Yeah. Because then I bring all of myself to every moment. And then every moment is just better, as opposed to this kind of distracted, stressed out, checking my phone, trying to make tea and watch Frozen version of me that just doesn't feel good. And I don't want to model that. Exactly. And it's true, there's research that says that something like 80% of children said that when their parents are on their phone, they feel like they don't care. And the TV thing was an example. It said, even if you think, you know, your kid's watching TV, this is a great time to catch up on emails and all the rest of it, but they're looking around because this is a, you know, a joint, did you see that? They want to experience it with you. If they look around and you're on your phone, then they're feeling like, oh. And I remember my brother talking about this with my dad, looking around excited and seeing him because my dad he had a massive burnout when we were kids. And so he was just exhausted and stressed out so much. That he just wasn't present. And it still to this day, he remembers that, of feeling that. And, you know, obviously, you know, I'm not saying <laughs> parents should be sitting and spending an hour and a half watching do like children's TV every day to bond with their child. But like, if that's thing you do, then at least do 10 minutes where you're really engaged and then say to them, I need to do a bit of work now on my phone and maybe at least let them know that's what's happening yeah exactly yeah I choose to do that whole hour and a half as my kind of downtime yeah it's not every day and I think that's right as long as you're kind of labeling it 
and just saying what's going on. I think Gabor Mate, who's, who's an incredible thinker on this stuff, probably one of the best in the world, said that, you know, phone use is the crisis of our times. Yeah. I feel like, you know, when you see people like on their phone with their family at the table, that shouldn't be looked at in the same way as if I suddenly took out a cigarette and started smoking a cigarette. Like it should be seen as like, you just don't do that. Like having your phones out there, it really is, it's really causing problems. And I love my phone. I still use it. It's really useful, but I use it in such a different way now. Let's talk about energy. You touched on it a few times, but you said something which I just wanted to pull up because I thought it was fascinating that we kind of have this idea that we wake up with a full battery and then mm. our day drains the battery and then we sleep and it recharges the battery again. And actually what you learn from your research is that how we are supposed to be is full of energy when we wake up and topping up that energy throughout the day so that as we go into our evenings, and I think you said something which I really liked, which is that you don't want to be going into, you know, say you are working and you go into interact with your family at the end of the day, you effectively don't want them to be getting the worse of you. Yeah. That, like red flashing light, <laughs> like battery draining. <laughs> you want to be going to them with the best of you. Yeah. And I think this idea is so profound. Again, it's kind of weaved into the narrative of our culture that the work gets the best of us. Work gets the energized, enthusiastic, creative self. And then the family gets the kind of scraps of what's left over. Yeah. And I love, and I think it's so important to not reverse that because clearly we have to bring all of that to work as well. But this idea that we can be energized throughout the length of our day and at work and at home, how do we do that? So this is why for me, understanding how energy works as human beings was such a game changer and why I feel like it's such an important aspect of this book, but I think for us all to be learning. And so it's this idea that actually we don't just have this set amount of energy. We can be increasing our energy and our capacity for energy. And so, for example, when people get to the end of the day, they've been sitting at a desk all day, whether at home or whether eventually when they open up again at an office, if you've been sitting all day at a desk, just thinking and working and typing and doing things and taking calls, whatever you're doing, at the end of the day, particularly if you haven't been topping your energy up throughout the day, but you can think, oh, I mean, the last thing I have energy for is to do anything much more than give the kids a bath have a glass of wine, collapse on the sofa. But often that fatigue at the end of the day, particularly if you've been sitting down, is because of the lack of movement and not using your physical energy. So as much as we need to be filling ourselves up with energy, we also comes from using that energy. You know, so if we're sitting down all the time, we've become sort of like sluggish. And that fatigue is actually, if you did a bit of exercise at the end of the day, you'd suddenly discover you renewed your energy. And, you know, likewise, mental energy is something that a lot of us use up at work and using one side of the brain. So that's why it could be really good when you get home to do something playful or to listen to music, to get into the sort of right side of the brain so that you can kind of wake that side up as well. And also if you've been doing a job, say if you're caring for people, you're there for the people. So you're using up all that wonderful emotional energy. You need to do something for yourself to fill your cup back up. And things that fill your cup up are talking about how you're feeling, 
doing things that lift your spirits, things that bring you joy, things that make you laugh, chatting to a friend. Maybe you've spent all day talking to people. So actually what you need is a bit of quiet time, particularly if you're an, an introvert. Perhaps if you've been working all day on your own, you need to talk to someone, you know, particularly that's what's happening during lockdown is that extroverts who lived on their own, worked on their own, their cup was becoming empty because they weren't having enough time interacting with others. So it's kind of learning what you need to keep all of those cups full. But it's absolutely this idea that you can wake up in the morning not feeling that energized. And by the middle of the day, you've done a few things, breathing exercises, done some exercise, chatted to a friend, and you've really brought your energy back up. And this is why it was so interesting learning from Tony Schwartz and Jim Lower, because they had worked with tennis champions. And those are the people who will know more than anyone what it's like to manage your energy because they have to. You know, imagine Serena Williams turning up to a match and being a bit like, oof, I don't know, I woke up not feeling particularly, it's a bit meh. You know, no, that would never happen. So obviously there are ways that human beings can look after their energy and renew their energy levels. Also, it's honoring that energy. You know, if you've had a night where you haven't slept much because your baby's been up all night, you know, don't expect to be full of energy in the morning, but there are things that you can do to help give you little energy boosts and look after yourself. And I think this is another kind of thing that we've been conditioned with is that kind of slumping on the sofa, watching TV, having that glass of wine and maybe a chocolate bar is restful actually it's not is it it's just not it's not actually filling you up in any way because it's stimulating it's often if it depends what you're watching can increase cortisol can increase fight flight freeze you know wine is a depressant it's going to drain your energy and I think there's this idea and I think that cycle is so prevalent for so many mothers like get through the day get on the sofa this is my treat. Get my treats. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's draining energy. Yeah. And also then, you know, that glass of wine or the two glasses of wine, then it does affect the quality of your sleep. So then what you do the next morning, you wake up and ugh, not feeling so good. We do know, oh, I know I need to boost my energy, but we don't know how to do it effectively. So the go-to thing in our culture is coffee you know, or something like that, that will do it. Actually, there are sort of breathing techniques or, you know, stretching, dancing around the kitchen to one track that you love will help to boost your energy much more effectively than a cup of coffee. Drink the coffee as well, by all means. (laughs) But like, it's not the best way, but people do then get into this cycle. And then of course, the adrenaline gets going and you need to keep boosting that energy spiking up throughout the day. And it's usually through sugar and caffeine and adrenaline. You know, if you think if you spent the whole day looking after other people, parenting at home, you're at work, you're doing both. And then in the evening, you're zoning out watching TV. Where have you spent any quality time with yourself? And again, by all means, do watch an episode on TV, but have a look at what other things you can do and experiment and explore to find how do I like to spend quality time with myself? What do I need? And that's why, you know, as you go through the book, you learn about physical energy, mental energy, and emotional energy. And you'll start to see the ones that you're like, oh, hold on. I think that's what I'm missing. Or like, oh, yes, that's what I need. Or even the ones you resist being like, uh-uh, I don't like the sound of that at all. For me, it was exercise. So finally starting to do exercise changed everything for me 
when it came to my energy. And I used to get so frustrated with both my partner and my mother, who for years, I just felt constantly tired. And I was like, this was just how it is. I'm a working mother. That's just how it is. And they would say to me, you know, what you need to do is you need to do some exercise. You need to move more. And I've got so irritated. I was like, when exactly do you think I have the time to do that? By the end of the day, I'm so exhausted. The last thing I have the energy for is jumping up and down or going for a run or anything like that. When I started to learn about energy management, it was so annoying how much exercise came up until finally I was like, right, okay, I'm going to give this a try. And the difference much like with the phone, it took no time at all for me to start to notice the difference. And I suddenly realized that for me, exercise now is about boosting my energy. This is what makes me furious. Why have we got in all the magazines, you know, here are things to tone your body and lose weight. Why are they not saying to us, find ways to do exercise? And it can include vigorous housework. Like exercise can come in all sorts shapes and sizes, working with your ability and your bodies. But it is one of the best energy boosters, mood boosters, confidence boosters, and it helps to build resilience. And my God, we need that as mothers. Again, it's these narratives. I had this narrative around exercise, which made me completely resist it. You can keep your exercise with your patriarchy. I want none of it. (laughs) Only to discover that it was a huge, huge energy booster that now, if I've been doing a lot of work in the day, kind of mental energy work. If I go and do 20 to 25 minutes hit workout in the kitchen, I will be really renewed and refreshed to go and do a coaching session or carry on with work. It totally blew me away. So what does an evening look like for you? Or how are you topping up that? You mentioned exercise, but I'm wondering if you're not slumping on the sofa with a glass of wine and Netflix, what are you doing in the evening to fill that cup back up? At the moment, because going out and seeing friends still isn't yet on the cards. And even then, I mean, once a week I would do that. Yoga is a really good one for me because it's something that I can do in the evening that will just help me to connect with me, move my body, stretch my body, bring me that energy without hyping. If I wouldn't want to do a HIIT workout at 7 p.m. because I just wouldn't then sleep. I'd then have to go and balance it out with a bath full of magnesium salts to kind of calm me down. Hot baths. Hot baths are my go-to. If I really feel like, oof, I am worn out by the end of the day, there's nothing like a hot bath. And I know there's that whole thing, self-care is more than a hot bubble bath. But actually, what I discovered is that when you get into hot water, it releases oxytocin, which is why it is so scientifically effective to help you rest and relax. I also did the other day, I downloaded a sound bath, like a five-minute sound bath, I think it was with Jasmine Hemsley, And I put that on for 20 minutes after I did some yoga. I thought I've just given myself a mini retreat. Well, sometimes it will be calling a friend. And sometimes it will be watching RuPaul's Drag Race definitely lifts my spirits and brings me joy. (laughs) Sometimes it will be that. But what also makes a difference for me now is reading before I go to bed because it nourishes my soul and it gets me sleepy and prepares me for bed. Sometimes journaling. I've never been a person that has a morning or an evening routine. Day after day is the same thing. I have a menu of options. So when I wake up in the morning, I'll be like, what time do I have this morning? And what do I want to do with that? You know, from my menu of options based on how I'm feeling, what I feel I need. And then likewise in the evening. 
but I am also now very good at topping my energy up throughout the day. So it's rare for me to get to an evening where I'm just absolutely exhausted, but it does still happen for sure. Yeah. And I think that's the big difference, you know, to go full circle before we close, it's like that difference between that real burnout feeling when you're in this kind of perpetual cycle, isn't it? Versus that more kind of natural feeling of, yes, there's a lot going on, but then knowing how to get out of that and knowing how to replenish the energy is the key. And I think that's what the book is so great at doing is kind of breaking down those steps. Is there anything else through writing it that you just wish every mother knew about? I think, do you know what? It's so important, the part of feeling your feelings. This was something I was saying on repeat during lockdown because a lot of people were getting into coping which is what a lot of mothers do. We get into coping, we just get on with it, we just do it, we just get through it. And it was really important, and I find it really important, you have to take a moment and actually just acknowledge how you're feeling. No judgment. I often find mothers resist admitting to how they're feeling, particularly when they're struggling with parenting because they feel that that makes them a bad person, that makes them a bad parent. That's not very nice. What does that mean about how I feel about my kids? It's not betraying your children to say, I'm really struggling. This is driving me nuts. And so I have in the book an emotional check-in toolkit where it has sentence stems and it will say things like, I'm upset that, I'm frustrated that, I'm afraid to admit that. And it just helps you to start getting that out. That is a really essential part for keeping your cup filled up is actually acknowledging owning and expressing your feelings and getting the frustration out because parenting does trigger us emotionally. I mean, you talk about this all the time, you know, how much we get triggered about, you know, triggered emotionally as parents. So it's so important if we try and suppress those feelings, brush them under the carpet because we feel ashamed to be feeling those things or we shouldn't be feeling those things or that's somehow not being nice to my kids for feeling those things. Those emotions don't go away. They come through the body, they bubble it up in other ways. And if anything, they gain momentum and they gain force. So taking the time, even if it's just once a week, (laughs) to really sort of check in with yourself and how you're feeling and simply expressing those feelings. But sometimes we do struggle to even be able to identify what we're feeling. Most people do. So being given those starting points, that also makes a big difference. Yeah, it's so important. And it often comes out physically, doesn't it? That's what I think is fascinating is, is when we suppress our feelings, it's physical symptoms. Absolutely. So interesting. Yeah. So interesting. Okay. Well, I always ask the same question at the end of every episode, which you will know if you listen, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would your one gift be and why? Do you know, considering I have heard you say this so many times, I really should have thought about what my answer would be. I mean, I want to give the gift of energy. I want to give the gift of energy. And I feel like so many mothers feel like are resigned that they're just not going to feel energized and full of vitality until their kids leave home. (laughs) And that's one of my biggest thing in this book is about reclaiming your energy and reclaiming your life. So yeah, the gift of energy. And how does someone buy the book, find you, get their energy back? (laughs) (laughs) Burnt Out is going to be, well, I mean, 
get it at all the online and offline bookshops. You can go to theburntoutbook.com and you can also go to selinabarker.com to find out about all the other things that I do. And I'm on Instagram on Selena the Coach. And I also have my own podcast, Project Love Podcast, I do with Vicky Pavitt. So we talk about all this stuff. Highly recommend. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. I loved the conversation and I think it's so important to think about this. It's a macro, which we did, and those kind of micro things that you can do. So thank you so much. Thank you. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. Also, just a reminder about the Family Reset Plan. It's my latest offering to parents. I think that we are living in probably the challenge of our lifetimes. Well, definitely so far. And as parents, we not only have to support ourselves, we also have to support our children. And that is a lot. So the Family Reset Plan is myself and two brilliant psychologists and we give you step-by-step, simple, applicable ways that you can support yourself emotionally to feel stronger, calmer, and therefore to support your children in a different way. It's all grounded in psychology and neuroscience. It's just £25 currently. And if you work for the NHS, it is totally free for you. So check out the website, familyresetplan.co.uk. Take care. I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Lauren. And I'm Nicole. And if you enjoy this show, you will love our podcast, Self Care Club. Every week, we trial a different form of self care and report back on the results. We've tried everything from cuddle therapy, setting boundaries, laughter yoga, and many more. Two friends who rarely agree on anything, testing out the world of self care so you don't have to. We've even written a book dedicated to self care practices that cost you nothing. You can listen to Self Care Club wherever you get your podcasts. Or to purchase our book, search Have You Tried This on Amazon.